Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be taking our text, verse 38. Thank you for your investment of time as a pastor. I know, as a pastor myself, I know you have a lot of options on a Sunday. And so I honor you, the people of God, uh, for being here. Thank you for buying into the vision of this local church. This church has not seen its greatest days. Amen. Thank you for the two that agreed with me. But this church has not seen. Just making sure it was on. You haven't seen your greatest revival. You haven't seen the outpouring that is still yet to come. And I'm excited when I think about the future of the river. Matter of fact, I think the river is going to get so big, y'all going to have to change it to the ocean. The ocean church. Maybe go to the sea next. The sea. The, I don't know which is bigger. Maybe they're the same. I don't know. I'm from the backwoods. I'm from the country. I don't, I don't know all those big words. And for those of you that were here last week and you heard Brother Holloway, yeah, I'm not him. Uh, he's way smarter than me. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dumb it down for you today. Uh, no, Brother Holloway is one of my dearest friends. Great man of God. I know you were blessed last week. Matter of fact, that's why I'm here is because your pastor didn't want to follow Brother Holloway. That's in case you hadn't figured that out yet. He's like, no, I'm, I'm not following him. I'll let Brother McGee do it. And uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Now, we don't like that scripture. But it's in your Bible. <laughs> Whether you like it or not, that's in your Bible. And if anyone wants to sue you, go on social media and tear them apart. Wait, no, that's not what I said. And take away your tunic or your cloak or your clothing. Let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. We're supposed to be extra. Amen. That, that, that's what defines a believer. Is we're not just half-hearted about this. He said if somebody asks you to go one, go two. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Whew. It's quiet. That's a good thing. That usually means it's landing. The word of God's landing or it needs to land. There's a whole lot here in this text, but I want to just, I want to draw your attention to verse, verse 41. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. I feel a, I feel a word for this church, and it's just simply this. You're in, a, you're in a season of revival. Revival didn't start today. You're in revival. But if there's something you could just get in your spirit today. Every member of this church, if this could get in your spirit, you're, I hate to tell you, Pastor Josh, but when that back wall comes down, I got a feeling you're not going to get rid of two services long because I think you could fill up the building twice over with the addition. I, I don't want to stress you out, but, but if you can get this in your spirit today, and it's simply this, the second mile church, the second mile church, God wants this to become a second mile church amen let's put our bibles down god i thank you for your word i thank you for the witness that i feel of the spirit right now god i thank you lord i feel you just settling in this place today i pray the word of god would go forth lord that it would settle in the hearts of men and women settle in the hearts of young people today god teenagers i pray they would receive the word of god and it would change the trajectory of their future, God, the future of this church. Let it get in our spirit, God. Let it be part of our DNA. 
in Jesus' name. And we'll forever give you the praise, the glory, and the honor. Could you clap your hands to the Lord one more time? Amen. You can be seated. The year was 1989. And automobile manufacturer Toyota found itself in a very awkward situation. See, they were attempting to cross over into the very exclusive luxury car market, which was previously dominated by the German brands BMW and Mercedes. The company had just launched its line called Lexus, and it debuted its brand new game-changing model called the LS400 that September. And by December of that year, 8,000 cars had been sold. And it seemed like Toyota actually had a chance to make their mark in the United States luxury car market. And everything was going as planned. Everything was going smoothly until two, two, one, two, two owners of the new LS400 reported that they had a minor issue with their cruise control. Now Lexus had a decision to make. Do we patiently wait for more problems to surface? I mean, after all, it's only two out of 8,000. Those are, those are pretty good odds. But since the luxury line was in its infancy, Lexus made an incredibly bold and extravagant move and voluntarily recalled every single model that had been sold all 8,000 they recalled them as Malcolm Gladwell would go on to report in his book the tipping point Lexus's decision to recall every single LS 400 is inseparable from the success that the company has gone on to generate since it was not only the recall but the way they handled the recall the company called every single owner on the day of the recall, all 8,000. They washed their car. They filled their tank up with gas while performing the recall and sent a mechanic to the home of every owner that lived more than 100 miles from a Lexus dealer. By issuing a recall, they signaled that they truly would provide top quality service, something that they couldn't establish nationwide just by telling people they had to prove it to people. And the recall was just as much an investment in their brand as it was a factory error. History would record that the recall appears to have been a genius overreaction. Some even doubted years later if the car had any issues at all. But the immediate an extravagant response of Lexus only added value to their motto, the relentless pursuit of perfection. They communicated from the very minute of the recall that they were willing to go the extra mile to preserve their brand. See, Jesus alludes to that concept of the second mile when he's passionately teaching an audience of future believers in Matthew chapter 5. We read it in our text. It's known... As the Sermon on the Mount, he begins to explain in great detail what a believer should look like. And he begins to tell them in verse 13 that you are the salt of the earth. And if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? But it is then good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He says you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do you light a lamp. And put it under a basket. Or no, but you put it on a lampstand and it gives light to all who are in the house. He said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. He goes down in verse 21 and says, you've heard that it was said to those of old. You shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, who's ever angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He went in verse 23 and says, Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, then leave your gift 
at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He said in verse 27, you've heard that it was said to those, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, whoever looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And he begins to teach them some very profound principles that the law gave you this, but grace is saying you got to do a little extra. And he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, cut it off. It's better for you to go without an eye and without a hand into heaven than to go with both into hell. God's not pulling any punches. He's not offering a soft, easy road for being a follower of Jesus. He's teaching that the life of a believer should supersede those of the world. We are supposed to be different. We're not like everyone else. He's teaching us that we live above the world lives. And then he really begins to hit home where they live in verse 38. We read it in our text. He says, you've heard it said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the cheek, punch him in the up. No, no, that's not what he said. Turn. Some people really think that's in the Bible. I pastor some of them. If, if somebody, oh wait, are we live streaming? I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. The other church across town. If anybody wants to sue you, give them your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Listen, everybody was bought into what Jesus was saying until he got to this second mile business. You see, because the group, that was in attendance that day. We're, we're probably going along. Yeah, that sounds good. I can, I can try that. That might work. And we'll, we'll do our best, Jesus, until he started preaching about where they lived. You see, in that day and time, the Roman Empire had conquered most of the Mediterranean world. The, one of the marvels of their conquest was a vast system of what's called superhighways, if you will, that they had built for travel. And from, to and from their conquered territories, history records that there were more than 50,000 miles of these Roman roads throughout the empire. And at each single mile was a stone marker. Y'all thought we invented mile markers. They've been around for a long, long time. See, these mile markers pointed directions. They determined the distance to the next town as well as to Rome itself. They even warned of dangers that lie ahead. Hence, the very common phrase that we have heard, all roads lead to Rome. By law, a Roman citizen or soldier could compel a subject from one of these conquered territories to carry their backpack or their load for him for one mile, but one mile only. The first Mile was required by law. So the first mile offered no blessing. It was the minimum requirement. In other words, the first mile was the mandated mile. And Jesus is telling the hearers that day that the mandated mile is not only required, but it is your minimum service. And the problem is the Jews were looking for a Savior who would come and deliver them from oppression. Make life a little easier and set up His kingdom here on earth. And now this supposed Savior is telling them that the mile of the oppressor is not only accepted, but it's required. But he doesn't stop there. He, he doesn't just land there. He takes it another step. Because he doesn't just stop at the first mile. He said, no, you don't go one mile. You go two. Go one more mile than is required. He's letting them know the blessing is attached to the second mile. Can you imagine how it landed on the crowd that day? I mean, can you just put yourself in their place? Because I want you to picture this. An occupied citizen is uh, in the middle of planting their field or uh, getting ready for the harvest. And along comes a Roman soldier or citizen. And you're trying not to make eye contact. But they call out to you. And they say, good sir, I, I need you to carry this load for me for a mile. So you got to forget what you're doing. you got to stop planting. You've got to stop. Stop sowing. Your day is now interrupted and you've got to carry their load, not your load, their load for one mile. And you don't get an Uber back to your field. There's no taxi bringing you back. You walk a mile carrying their load and you walk a mile back in your own frustration. And Jesus said, you don't just go one mile, you go two 
See, the first mile is motivated by law, but the second mile is motivated by love and the willingness to serve. And the blessing, the miracle is attached to the second mile because anybody can go one mile. Anybody can grit their teeth and do what's required. Do the minimum. The first mile may interrupt your schedule when you're compelled to perform it. It causes you to swallow your pride and bear an extra burden. And if we're honest, often the most difficult part of the Christian experience is just walking the first mile. It's true with everything in life. You ever tried to start a diet? Oh, don't you be lying in church. You know good and well, everyone of y'all knew, I'm starting a diet today. January the 3rd, you and your donuts rolling down the road. I'll start next week. You try to start an exercise program. You try to start running every day. Then you're reminded of why you didn't run. I'm like, man, I would run, but I don't want to go into cardiac arrest. And I don't run because the Bible says the wicked flee when no man pursueth. Hello, I ain't running. Ain't nobody chasing me. I ain't in no hurry. What do I got to run for? But that first mile, that first mile is what is most difficult for all of us. Many want the blessings that come with the second mile. But they don't want to deal with the requirements of the first mile. And the second mile is only made possible by being obedient to the first mile. But I want you to imagine the impact of what Jesus said. A Roman soldier comes by. He abruptly calls for a young woman or man who is a believer in Jesus Christ. And they roughly demand that they carry their backpack for one mile down the road. And that command interrupts their whole day and takes them away from their field of labor. But they have no choice. However, this man or woman is a second miler. And when they get to the one mile marker... The soldier expects them to angrily drop the backpack, spit on the ground as all the others and march back angrily to their field of labor. But when they get to the one mile marker, this believer in Jesus Christ says, hey, if it's all right with you, sir, I want to carry this another mile. Can you imagine the impact? The soldier is baffled. He can't explain who would do such a thing. Therefore, this soldier is now influenced by a believer in Jesus Christ and history would record this is how many Romans were influenced by the gospel it's because they got an extra mile with the believer in Jesus Christ it's because you can't travel an extra mile without influencing somebody oh what I'm trying to tell this church is if you'll embrace the second mile your influence will go beyond these walls it'll go beyond this room but it'll influence every unbeliever in this community it only takes one second miler in a home to change the environment it only takes one second miler on a team or in the office to do the same and a church full of second mile mentality will change an entire city I want to be part of a second mile church is because the blessing is in the second mile can you imagine a church full of people that don't want to just do the minimum but they join together and they say pastor I don't want to just do the minimum I don't want to just barely get by I want to go the second mile let me know how I can serve let me know how I can give let me know how I can get involved come on we got a city to reach we got a church to build we got families to save I'm willing to go the second mile second milers go above and beyond see a second miler somebody take don't bother a second miler if they lose their parking spot don't bother. Matter of fact, they'll park down the road just so a visitor can have a parking spot. That landed about like I thought it would. <laughs> Second milers, music's too loud. They just get earplugs, show up, worship the same. 
Second miler, if it's too cold, they just bring an extra coat and worship Jesus anyway. Second milers, you can't offend them. You can't run them off. You, you, can't, you can do it. What are you? You cannot get rid of a second miler. They say, hey, that's all right. If somebody offends them, they were just having a bad day. I know they're a believer just like me. We got a church to build. I'm not going to get offended at the first mile. I'm going to carry that load. And I'm going to go another mile. Come on, God's wanting to build a church in this city. But he's saying, can I get somebody to go the second mile? The Bible is full of second milers. Abraham, God tells him to go and sacrifice his son. He doesn't expect him to enjoy the journey. But Abraham, when he gets to the place of sacrifice, he looks at the servants and he says, you stay here while the lad and I go to worship because that's what a second miler, a second miler sees sacrifice as worship. David, when he goes out to kill Goliath, he's a second miler. That's why he grabs, grabs five stones when he only needs one is because he's just extra. I don't know why he grabbed five. There's been a lot of cute sermons about why he grabbed five. And I don't have no idea. Somebody said, well, it's because he had four other brothers and he was going to kill all four. I don't know. I know this. He grabbed five because he probably thought if I miss him with the first one, I got four more. It's because I believe God is going to give me favor. I'm not going to grab the minimum. I'm going to get handfuls of purpose. Come on. I might laugh. Come on, God's looking for a church that will embrace the second mile and say, I'll go beyond. I'll do whatever it takes. I want to see God's will fulfilled in this church. I begin to pray the genesis of this message. For those that might wonder, as I begin to pray and begin to ponder over the last few years and sought the Lord for the, for the kind of church that God wanted our church to become. And I've been on this journey of kind of seeking the direction of God for, Lord, what, what's the kind of church that attracts your blessing? And I've read numerous books. I've, 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 Brother Josh and our Pastor Josh and I are very close friends. Our churches are very similar in trajectory and size. And, and so we've stayed very closely connected. And so one day in prayer, and I was seeking the Lord, God, what, what, what's the kind of church? What what kind of, we're the bride of Christ. What, what kind of bride, God, attracts blessing? And the Lord led me, of all places, to Genesis chapter, chapter 24. And I'm going to be honest, it's a very peculiar passage of Scripture. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll read this. But Genesis chapter 24 records that Abraham was looking for a bride for Isaac. Isaac was the son of promise. All the blessings of Abraham were falling upon Isaac. But in order for Isaac to handle that blessing, he needed a bride that God could trust. So what does that bride look like? In Genesis 24, it records when Abraham was old. He was well up in years. The Lord blessed him in all things. And Abraham said to his oldest servant, Please put your hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites. So the first thing about this bride, this bride can't be a heathen. She can't be a carnal bride. She's got to be a bride of the bloodline. She's got to be a bride from the same bloodline of Abraham. She's, she's got to be connected to the covenant. She can't be a Canaanite. So I want you to go to my country and take a wife for my son Isaac. And Abraham was very specific. She's got to be a bride of my people. She can't be a carnal, fleshly bride. And he made his servant swear to this. So the servant set out on a mission to find a bride for the son of promise. All the blessing, all the wealth, all the riches and the honor of Abraham are going to be on Isaac. And it was very crucial who would be the bride of blessing. And listen to the thought process of the servant in Genesis 24 and 10. The servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed for all his master's goods were in his hand all the blessing of Abraham all the riches and the wealth of Abraham were in this servant's disposal and said I for a bride of blessing and he went to the land of Abraham's people and he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water the time when women go out to draw water and he said oh Lord my God of my master Abraham Give me success this day and show kindness to my master. Behold, I stand by this water of well. And the daughters of the men of the city 
are coming out to draw water. And here's his requirement. Lord, now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink. And she says, drink. Let her be. The, but he didn't stop there. He said, Who, whatever lady comes out, whatever young daughter of the men of the city comes out and offers me a drink at my request. See, that's a first mile request. The first mile just says, yes, I'll give a stranger to drink. But listen to what he says. But I'm not looking for a first mile bride. But whoever says, drink, and I will also give your camels to drink. Let her be the one you have appointed. Now, that's quite a request. I realize me just saying that probably didn't bring a whole lot of of, of deep thought there. But I want you to think about this because I'm not sure if you understood the prayer he just prayed. See, he said, Lord, the woman who will not only draw water for me, but for my camels, she will be the bride of the blessing. Let me give you a little bit of context here. It's estimated that one camel can drink between 30 to 50 gallons of water at one sitting. Thirsty. Thirsty. 50 gallons of water. Of water. One camel. My man had ten camels. That's between on the low side 300 gallons. On the high side 500 gallons of water. The typical picture of that day of water that the ladies would come down to the well with would hold two to three gallons of water. And my man prayed the prayer. God, whatever bride... Will give me a drink and will compel to give my camels to drink. That's the bride that I can trust. That's the bride that gets the blessing. That's the bride that gets all of the riches and the wealth and the favor of Abraham. (laughs) And so the narrative is. Oh, let me back up here. Sorry, I don't know why I just stuttered there. With a three-gallon pitcher. Okay, you got to get this now. A gallon of water. Okay, Brother Holloway might be impressed with this. Actually, look this up. A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. A gallon. So this lady is committing. Whoever this bride is, this was his prayer. God, if if a bride is going to get the blessing of Abraham, if she's going to get the untold riches of Abraham, she's got to be able to carry a little weight. And she's going to have to carry a total weight. See, that's going to be a minimum of 100 trips to the well. And that's going to be a total weight between 2,400 and 4,000 pounds of water. And mind you, The wells in that day were not at the surface. You had to walk down to the well. A lot of them were staircases that you had to go down and get the water and walk all the way back up. And he said, Lord, whatever bride will give me a drink, but give all my camels to drink. She's the one. And read what happens. The Bible says in verse 15 that before he finished speaking, that behold, Rebecca who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor. She was of the right blood, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. And now the young lady was beautiful. Now that's a, that's a bonus. She's good looking. Now we, we... This bride was of the right lineage. And she was beautiful. But being of the right lineage and being beautiful is not enough to get you the blessing. And I'm afraid so many have said, if I'm as long as I got the blood and I'm beautiful, that's enough for the blessing. No, he said, she's got to have the blood and she's got to be willing to carry the weight. And the Bible says, she went down to the well, filled her pitcher and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and says, please let me drink a little water from your pitcher. Now, it was her beauty and her bloodline that attracted her to opportunity. It was the beauty of which she possessed. She was pure and she was of the right blood that set her up. See, our beauty and the blood is the right thing that will set us up for the blessing. But the reason so many don't step into the blessing is because they stop at the first mile. The first mile is just your beauty and it's the blood and you're willing to do the minimum. But if you will be willing to go the second mile, it will get you the untold riches of covenant. And the Bible says that she said, drink, my Lord. 
And she quickly let down her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. He wants to know, is this the bride who can handle the blessing? Is this the bride worthy of giving birth to a nation of the people of God? you got to understand the blessing of Abraham was in that servant's possession. God had prophesied over Abraham that he was going to give birth to a nation. Little did he know that bride was going to have two nations in her womb. It couldn't be a weak bride. It couldn't be a lazy bride. It couldn't be a content bride. It couldn't be a bride that was just content to be beautiful. It couldn't be a bride that was content just to be from the right family. It had to be a bride that was willing to operate with a burden to bring blessing could she be trusted to give birth to a Jacob who would become the mother of the 12 tribes of Israel what kind of bride is attached to blessing and so he gives her the test can I have a drink of water because you got to be able to pass the first mile test before you can get to the second mile because everybody will give a stranger that's the minimum that was required to give a stranger a drink but if she's a true bride if she's a bride of blessing she will go the second mile she'll do what's not even asked of her and give my camels water to drink somebody that will go extravagantly above and beyond to attract blessing and when she had finished giving him a drink she said he didn't ask he didn't beg she said I will draw water For your camels also. In verse 19, listen to what she said. Until they have finished drinking. That's a bad woman right there. That's a bad woman right there. That girl was in shape. Because the Bible says that she ran unto the well. She did it, Pastor, joyfully. She said, oh, let me get the picture. I'm going to go down to the well because I don't know what's attached to this water. But there's blessing in the water. And so I'm just going to serve. I don't know where it's going to lead. But I'm going to go the second mile. I don't know when God's going to open the door. I don't know when God's going to do it. I don't know when God's going to bring favor. I'm just going to keep working. And I'm going to work with blessing in my spirit. Spirit. And the Bible says she quickly emptied her pitcher and ran back to the well and drew water for all his camels. Over three to five hundred gallons of water. This woman carried it. He said, This is a bride that I can bless. This is a bride that can endure. This is a bride that can handle my blessing. That servant knew that Abraham was extravagant in hospitality and wealth. If his name was going to be carried out, if the son of promise was going to be connected to anybody, he needed to be connected to an extravagant bride because a selfish, lazy, self-centered bride can't be trusted with blessing. But a second mile bride can carry the blessing. She won't hoard it. She won't misuse it. She won't be careless. She won't feel entitled. She won't think she deserves it. She won't think somehow that she's better than everybody else. No, she's got to be willing to shoulder the load and say, I can be trusted with blessing. And watch what happens when she goes the second mile. Verse 22, when the camels had finished drinking... Some of you, I got a little word for somebody. Some of you may be here today and you're saying, well, pastor, that's a great message. I've been going the second mile. Well, your day hadn't come because the camels hadn't finished drinking. That which God called you to do, that's above and beyond. It's not complete yet. And when it's complete, he'll open the next door. But you just keep serving. You just keep carrying a water pitcher. You just keep shouldering the load. Because some of you right now, you got to be careful that you don't let bitterness get in your spirit. It's because what will happen is you'll think all that extra effort, all that labor is in vain. Honey, anything you do. The Bible says if you serve a cup of water, serve it in the name of Jesus. Why? It's because when that camel gets done drinking, when that ministry is complete, when that door is closed, God will open a bigger door door. God will allow you to step in the new ministry. God will allow you to step in the new blessing. But he's got to make sure that you're not going to quit until the camels are finished drinking. Let that man hop down off that camel. He had to make sure that she would see the job through. 
I don't need somebody to start the second mile and quit halfway. And so when the camels had finished drinking, it almost seems cruel. Here's this beautiful bride, no doubt by now sweating, laboring, toiling. And this old bro, he just sitting on a camel. He ain't moved. Like, hey, bro, you want to help? I got another picture. I mean, he looked real comfortable up there in the camel. <laughs> my Lord, how many of these things drink? Good Lord. I got, I got bunions on my toes. These rascals just drinking. Hey, I've been there. I've been there. I've been there in ministry. You feel like you're doing everything only to bring it. <laughs> my Lord, they still need me. But if you're willing to shoulder the load and you're willing to run back to the well and just keep bringing a life flow, come on, I know there's needy people. I know there's thirsty people. I know there seems like you'll never get done, but listen to me in the Holy Ghost. If you'll keep going the second mile, there's coming a day when God is going to say, hey, I've seen your labor. I've seen your faithfulness. I've got the riches of Abraham. And when the job was complete, he took a golden ring, weighing half a shekel, nose ring, excuse me, and two bracelets for her wrist, weighing ten shekels of gold, and says, tell me where you live, because blessing is coming to your house. You don't even know what you've done. You did it out of service. You did it out of extravagance. You did it with the right spirit. You've done it with a, with a faithful heart. You haven't complained. I know you were tired. I know it seemed like you was about to buckle under the load. But I saw you every time you went to the well. I saw you every time you got on your knees in prayer. I saw you every time you taught a Bible study. I saw you every time you stood at the door and opened it for a first time guest. I saw every time you helped somebody park their car. I saw every Every time you ran media, I saw every time you adjusted knobs in the sound booth. You could have gotten mad. You could have quit. But you just kept laboring. You kept toiling. You kept serving. And now, blessing is coming to your house. Come on, don't quit in the middle of the second mile. Just keep laboring. Keep serving. Keep giving. Keep going. God sees. And listen to what he tells her family. He said, I'm Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great. He's given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, he begins to paint the picture. And now, my master's wife, Sarah, has born a son. And everything that belongs to my master, it now belongs to Isaac. And Isaac is looking for a bride to bless and we've been praying, we've been searching, and we've been looking for a bride that we can bless. And we've seen that bride has to be from the right blood. Check. She's got to be beautiful. Check. But it's more than beauty and it's more than blood. We need to see if she can handle a burden. Because if she can get under a burden and she can serve when she's burdened. If she can stay faithful when she's burdened. You get the beauty, the blood, and a burden. That comes blessing. And now the wealth of Abraham has come to your house. Come on, Rebecca. Your life just got changed overnight. Now you want for nothing. Now you got riches. Now you've got servants. Now you've got the master's favor because you were willing to go the second mile. Ooh. Rebecca's desire to go the second mile not only secured her future, but it brought blessing to her family. What burden is God trying to get you under so that he can see if he can trust you with blessing? And the problem is many of us get bitter under the burden and we forfeit the blessing because you thought the blood and beauty was enough no, no, no. God's put a burden on you. God's put a calling on you. You say, well, my calling is not like it. You're right. Your calling is not like it. Your calling may be serving donuts at Revive. Your calling may be just fixing a pot of coffee on Sunday morning. Your calling may just be bringing a cup of water for the evangelist to drink out of. Your calling may be to teach a Sunday school class. Your calling may be to teach a Bible study. Your calling may be to mow the grass. Your calling may be to give to this church financially. But whatever that calling is, if you'll go the second 
second mile. If you say, Pastor, I'm not just doing the minimum. I want blessing to come to my family. And I won't let bitterness get in. I won't let bitterness get in my spirit. I won't complain when I feel like the door hasn't opened yet. I'll just keep serving. Little did that servant know that Isaac's future would be spent digging out wells of his father that had been covered up by the enemy. And he needed a bride that was willing to get a burden for the well. Somebody needs to hear the word of the Lord today. In order for him to dig out wells of blessing, he needed a bride that was willing to carry the water to thirsty souls. Second milers bring blessing to everything they touch. And God is looking to bless a church. God has been searching in this parish, in this community. He's been searching and he's been looking. Where is a church that I can trust with my riches? Where is a bride that I can trust to bring revival that will shake this community? Where is a church that I can allow unprecedented harvest? I need a church that's not selfish. I need a church that's not afraid to work. I need a church that's not a first mile church. I got plenty of those. I need a church that'll go the second mile. They don't mind praying more than what's required. They don't mind giving. They don't mind going. They don't mind blessing. They will get under the burden and they will bring revival. Let me tell you what. The reason God is looking for a second mile church is because he's a second mile God. Your Bible says in Ephesians 3, now to him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly God don't stop at the first mile God gives second mile and a God of second mile blessing needs a second mile burden church a church that will say you know what if pastor asked me to teach one Bible study I'm going to teach two come on if pastor asked me to pay tithes I'm going to pay 12% oh sorry I didn't mean to say that I have people in my church that do that not because I asked them I would never get up in the pulpit and say hey I think you need to pay more tithes No, unprovoked, because that's really what a second miler does. They do what's not even asked. I've got people in my church, you want to know know something funny? I have a lady in my church come up to me and said, Pastor, you've been preaching on giving. And when we preach on giving, I preach on missions. That's all I preach when it comes to giving. I preach on missions, and our church sacrificially gives to missions. And our missions, has because I know if if our missions giving increases, everything else increases. And so we just preach missions. Give to missions. Give, give, give. And we don't apologize for preaching missions. I had a lady come up to me. She said, Pastor. She said, you've been preaching about missions. And I bought it. And she said, I just wanted you to know. I'm not saying this to pin roses on me. She said, but I got convicted. And she said, I decided that I would pay 15% instead of 10%. She said, I know you didn't ask me. But I just wanted to let, she, she said, I just wanted to let you know what God has done. She said, I've done it for the past year. She said, I have been on my job for, the la- for eight years and I've been passed up for promotion time and time and time again. She said, I was getting so frustrated, so discouraged. She said, I started paying 15%. She says, which was a sacrifice. I'll be honest, it was a sacrifice. She says, would you know they just offered me the manager position in my job? She said, and do you want to guess what my pay is? My pay now equals my 15% tithe. Hello, somebody. Come on, somebody. Because God said, if you'll go the second mile, I'll open up blessing. You'll tap into something that you don't even know is available. If you go the second mile, I'll give you a second mile blessing. So here we go. So you know what she did? She didn't allow her tithes to be adjusted to the new pay. She said, nope, devil is a lie. I'm going to keep paying 15. I'm praying that spirit gets a hold of our whole church. Because God wants to see, and that's why I preach missions and this church gives to missions, is because I want God to see that's a church I can trust with blessing. Is because they're not going to hoard it. They're not going to just use it for themselves. But they're not only going to see the kingdom expand here, but they're going to see the kingdom expand globally. And sadly, too many have not received the second mile blessing because you're so bitter And angry at the request of the first mile. You're complaining and griping and moaning. Not everybody, but a few. Because too many just want to get by with the bare minimum. 
Do the least amount of work. Do not take pride in serving the king. And as a church, it doesn't matter if you're preparing a Sunday school lesson, cleaning around the building, ministering to the youth or hyphen, visiting a minister at the hospital or a member at the hospital, cutting the grass or preaching. We must do it with a second mile mentality because we serve a second mile God. Let's all stand all over this house. Second mile. So today's a little different. I realize, I realize this church is in a season of revival. I realize this church is knocking down this wall to make more room. I, so I'm not preaching to a church today. I realize I'm, I'm not preaching to a church today that has not embraced some of the principles that I've preached about today. But what I am doing is I'm just coming alongside and I'm saying this whole church will adopt the mentality of the second mile. That says we will do not only what is the minimum, but we want to go beyond what the minimum requires. That's really what Jesus was. That sermon on the mount was a second mile message he said you've heard it in times past not to commit murder but what I'm saying is if you even have hatred in your heart against your brother you've committed murder I'm taking it another mile you've heard it said that if you commit adultery you're in danger of judgment I'm telling you if you look at a woman to lust I'm taking it the second mile God's a second mile God and a second mile God has second mile requirements and so what I'm asking this church is, we can no longer live on the minimum. We can no longer live on fragments. we got to say, God, what is it? What is it that you want me to do? What is it, God, that you want me to do? I, I, I've never shared this outside of my local church, so I hope, I just feel impressed to share this. And I hope you'll take it in the spirit in which I'm sharing it. Because it's not, it's nothing, no reflection on me. But I'm just trying, I feel led to give you a little bit of my story. When I, when I came to God, I was a backslider pursuing my own calling. I, I went and signed a scholarship to play baseball in college and played for four years. Then became a graduate assistant coach. My plan was to be a college baseball coach. That's what I wanted. And after almost dying in a boating accident, God spared my life miraculously. And I, I, was, I had a Jonah moment, came back to God. God restored me. I answered the call. I knew I had a call to preach on my life that I ran away from ignorantly. So after my wife and I got married, we vowed to each other that we would put the kingdom first in everything we did. Listen, me running away from church is what cost me. Me running to the church is what's going to save me. So we said every decision we make is going to be centered around the kingdom. Every decision. We're not gonna, I'm not going to make the same mistake. And Thank God he blessed me with a great wife that has just trusted me and followed my, my walk with God. And we've walked together with God. I'll never forget, I was 25 years old. God had blessed me with an incredible job. The 9 a.m. service, I told you how poor we was, but I didn't give the rest of the story. The rest of the story was by the time I was 25, God opened up the windows of heaven. And at 20, 25 years old, and once again, I don't say this to make myself sound important. Please understand. But my wife and I together in 2003 at the age of 25 were making right at $80,000. In today's money, that's about $120,000. At 25, we were blessed. We were doing great. We were youth pastors at our local church, but we had very successful secular jobs. And life was great. We just bought a place. And uh, a home missionary pastor called us and wanted us to pray about coming to be their youth pastor. And I'll be honest, we were like, mm, okay, we'll pray about it. Lord, is it your will? Okay, good. We ain't going. Um, I'm making a lot of money. And, uh, he said, well, I tell you what, do. This church was only three years old. He said, why don't you come preach a revival for us? And you just feel after the will of God. You, you see what you think. So we go up to Omaha, Nebraska, where there's only 17 churches in the whole state at that time. We had 17 churches within 10 miles of our church. They had 17 Pentecostal churches in the whole state. We go to preach for them, great services, beautiful city, but church of about 70 people. We had a youth group of 75. Our youth group was bigger than our church. And uh, we had just built a brand new life center, had a bowling alley. Man, we had to hook up. Church was doing good. I had a great home church, revival church. And uh, I'll never forget, we went out to their youth camp. He said, hey, we're having, I'm sorry, not youth camp, camp meeting. He said, come out to the camp meeting this week. I want you to come. And I'm thinking, yeah, camp meeting. Now we're talking. Man, there's, there's as many people in these two sections as there was in camp meeting. 
for the whole state. And I walked in that tabernacle, and I'm telling you right now, if the termites quit holding hands, those buildings would have fell down. <laughs> it was rough. I'll never forget, Pastor Josh. It was late. Now, I'll be honest, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, ooh, I'm ready to go get back home, get back to my good job, good paying job, good thriving youth group, great church, comfortable. I'm ready to get back to my comfortable life. I stepped out of that tabernacle looking for my son, who at that time was three years old. I walk outside, and it's dark. I walk across this little gravel road, and as sure as I'm standing here in shoes, I heard the Lord say, this is where you will come. I'm not saying it was audible, but I felt it so strong as if... Here's God speaks in strange ways because His Spirit is on the inside of us, so He speaks inside of us. So I heard the voice, though, and I didn't want to hear it. I'll be honest with you. God, you got the wrong guy. He's inside. Uh, And I prayed about it, and I immediately started to cry because I knew it was God. Long story short, went back, prayed about it, got the blessing of my pastor. I walked in and resigned my job making $80,000, moved my city to Omaha, Nebraska, and I didn't have a job. Cashed in my four, I did the dumbest thing you could do. I cashed in my 401k. That was all we had to live on until I could find another job. Moved our family up there. And within two weeks of landing there, I got a job at half of what I was making. But hey, it was a job. But I'm going to tell you right now, the blessing that has followed our life since we decided we will no longer be a first mile family. I want to do everything we can do to be a second mile family. And if it means God, you want us to move here, you want us to serve here, you want us to go here. Now mind you, we had the blessing of our pastor. We didn't move as renegades. Our pastor prayed about it. He felt a release. He let us go. And we went and saw that church of 70 grow to a high of 330 on Easter within about three or four years. We went 26 weeks at one time where we had baptisms every single Sunday for, I think it was 26 weeks. That church grew to well over 200 people in average attendance on Sunday mornings. Within a matter of five years, we saw revival. Revival that we would have missed if we'd have stayed in the first mile. So my question for the river is, what revival is God wanting to do in your family, in your life, in your church. What miracle are you going to miss if you stay stuck in the first mile? We're going down to the river, down to the river, down to the river to pray. Yeah, yeah. Let's get washed by the water, washed by the water and rise up in amazing grace. Let's go down.